0: Truly Deadly. Written by Rob Aspinall. Narrated by Ella Lynch. Chapter 20. London, bitches. We stepped off the coach with bodies half-asleep from the five-hour slog that had started at 5.30 on a chilly Manchester morning. But as soon as we hit the streets of warm, sunny London, it was all forgotten. I felt the combined thrill of skipping class and being here with Becky. It wasn't at all like in my dreams. Everything was bright and breezy and no blood in sight, just the red London buses trundling past. Seeing as we were close by, we hit Buckingham Palace first. No sign of the Queen, but we took photos of ourselves with the guards in furry hats, tried to make them react by pulling silly faces and wiggling our asses. They did well. You can ignore a willowy young girl in white trainers and a high-neck yellow summer dress, but try acting like you didn't see the dusky bombshell in the tiny denim cutoffs. Next up, we hit Big Ben and the London Eye, then took the tube over to Oxford Street, where we window-shopped our feet off. There wasn't much of a plan, other than keep seeing the sights until inner Philippe gave me some kind of clue. But, to be honest, I was having so much fun away from the shackles of hospital, school and home, that I forgot all about it. We even got served in a pub, no idea or anything. I ignored my urge for a scotch, and we sat out on the street, watching fit men and glam women strolling by in their designer dresses and shades. Proper ones too, not like the fake bug-eye Gucci shades I'd got off eBay. I could definitely get used to this, Becky said, tipping her head back in the sun. The light sparkling off her glossy lips. True that, I said, sucking on a vodka lemonade. Guys were constantly checking us out as they walked by. Okay, checking Becky out mainly, but I was part of it. Invited to the human party, and it felt like we were a big deal. It was also proof that I hadn't totally turned. I still liked guys. I guess it was like popcorn. You could have salty or sweet. Or even both at the same time. Either flavour was completely different and yet totally nom. We finished our drinks and spent most of the money we had left on a KFC. I know, I know. Healthy diet, blah, blah. Animal cruelty, blah, blah. Big woo. I was on holiday. Sitting by a window, looking out onto the bustling street, I wiped my mouth with a serviette and chugged my lunchtime pills with a Coke. Hey, what would you rather eat? Becky asked, licking gunk off her fingers one by one. Chocolate-flavoured poo or poo-flavoured chocolate. Hmm, not sure both would be gross. It's a real stumper, isn't it? she said between licks. I still can't decide. Man, she even made chicken grease sexy. As I swallowed my last pill, I saw a helicopter whizzing across the skyline, high above the city. Images and memories played like a flashback before my eyes. The black helicopter, the small Chinese boy with the SpongeBob balloon, the shopping arcade, the alley, the street name that belonged to the alley. I took out my phone and jumped on Google Maps. Boom, there it was. Swan Street, no more than a few minutes away. What is it? Becky asked. I think I know where the church is. I said. We stood in the alley where the shooting went down. Becky sniffing the air in disgust. I'm sure it was just my imagination, but as I remembered the sniper leaning out of the chopper, I also felt a sharp pain in my lower left gut where the bullet had entered. Then again, it could have been the hot wings. I don't get it, Becky said. What are we doing in Tramp Alley? It smells of wee. I didn't answer. I wasn't listening. I'd noticed a big hole in a nearby no-entry sign. Something had punched right through it. "'Holy shit!' I said, pointing at the sign. "'I've seen this before.' It felt like someone had passed an electric current through my entire body. "'In your memory dream?' Becky asked, joining me in staring through the hole in the sign. "'Yeah,' I said. "'One of the bullets that missed me. "'It hit right here, I remember.' That is spooky weird, Becky said. I mean, I thought it would be cool to come to London. I didn't actually believe you. Gee, thanks. Becky just shrugged. We headed down the alley and came out in the pedestrian area. The shopping arcade was right where I'd dreamt it. We followed the path I'd taken on the pizza bike and came out the other side, hanging a left and coming across the bench I'd crashed into. Its metal underside was mangled, a couple of broken wooden slats in the seat, black rubber skid marks from the tyres leading us straight to it. Memories flashed into mind of the stagger to the church, and sure enough, just a short walk up the street was the doorway, this time half open. I turned to Becky, who was busy texting, probably Johnny. I think I should go in alone, I said. It'll be more discreet. Dressed as provocatively as she was, I thought Becky would draw too much attention. I wanted to breeze in and out like the wind under God's radar. Becky didn't seem fussed. "Uh Uh-huh. It'll only take a minute. Uh Uh-huh. I left her leaning against the wall, glued to her iPhone, and stepped inside the church. Everything felt eerily familiar. It was cool and dark, with old chairs, a quiet carpet, and that woody church smell. It was empty, too, save for an old woman dressed in traditional African clothing, sitting quietly at the back, far enough away not to notice me. I spotted the confession booth against the left-hand side of the wall towards the front. I made a beeline for it with soft, quick steps. Fortunately, the booth was empty. I remembered from the dream that Philippe had sat on the right-hand side as I looked at it. I stepped inside, drew the purple curtain and plonked myself on the hardwood bench. I pulled out my phone and tapped on the flashlight, then bent over double and searched the underneath of the bench for any sign of the mystery object. I scanned the light back and forth. There was a hardened lump of pale green chewing gum, but nothing else. Did I really think there was some kind of secret object hidden in a church by a super-assassin? My heart sank a little. It felt like a dead end on the road to an adventure. ''Maybe it fell?'' a part of me whispered. I felt around on the floorboards beneath the bench, rough to the touch, worn down by sin. My fingers brushed against something light, smooth and very un-wooden. I scooped it up and held it under the flashlight. ''Yes! It was the object!'' I did a silent fist pump and tucked it away in a small pocket inside my handbag before standing up and flattening out my dress. I wanted to stroll out, cool as a frozen cucumber. Just one snag. I heard footsteps approaching the booth. The curtain on the other side drew shut, and a shadowy figure sat down with a wheeze on the other side of the mesh divide. Oh, terrific! It was the priest! He rested for a moment, breathing heavy through his nose, as if waiting for me to speak. Fat chance, Gramps. I was about to sneak out, when he spoke in a soft Irish voice. Yes, my child? Damn. Um. How did this go again? Auntie Claire had made me confess once, on the off chance my condition was because I defended Big Beardy. But I've not done anything, I'd told her. Have you said anything? She'd asked me. Taken the Lord's name in vain? No, I'd said, I don't think so. Then you must have thought something. I really don't think I have, Auntie Clare. Well, just may it something up, she'd said, shoving me inside the booth while she did one of her fake smiles at the rest of the congregation. I was a little fuzzy on how it went, but I took a stab. I had to look like I was here on church business, not secret spy business. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. What is your confession? the priest asked, looking straight ahead. Silver-haired and smelling of wine. Yep, he was the one from the dream. I tried to think of something to own up about. Jesus, where to start? Keep it small, lawn. Didn't want to be here all day. Okay, I, I guess I swear sometimes. Shit and piss and stuff like... Oh, sorry, father. The priest sat impassively. And what else, my child? What else? Have you disrespected your father or your mother? No. No. Stolen from your fellow man or woman? I thought about the object inside my handbag. Not technically. Have you had any impure thoughts? I puffed my cheeks and blew out some air. Um, whatever it is, I've heard it all before, my child. Something about his soft persistence dragged it out of me. Before I knew it, I was confessing away. Well, I've been having dreams about killing people. Go on blowing up cars, shooting guys in the face. I chopped a guy's head off in the desert. Once I got going, there was no stopping me. I humiliated a science teacher, and I've been having impure thoughts about my um, best friend. I'm not a lesbian or anything, but she's really, really hot, and I think it's because I got transplanted with the heart of a man, an assassin. He's dead now. He got shot by a government sniper, and the priest twisted in his seat and stared at me through the divider. I realised I'd said far, far too much. This was the priest who'd found Philippe, after all. I grabbed my handbag and dragged open the curtain. OK, bye! I scampered out of the church, half-blinding myself in the afternoon sun. Becky was taking a photo of a dress in a shop window. What took you so long? she asked. Come on, I said, dragging her away from the window without breaking stride. Gotta go! I glanced over my shoulder and saw the priest standing in the doorway, scratching his head. Did you get it? Becky asked. Was it there? I can't believe it's actually real, Becky said, shaking the object. What do you think it is? That was the squillion dollar question. It didn't seem to be, do or fit anything. I'd heard Sarah mention some kind of list, but other than that, I don't know, it's weird. I said, taking it back off her. There must be some reason the guy hid it. Becky bunched up the curtain against the coach window as a make-do pillow, the early evening sun still high enough to break over the hills and cast her face in a warm amber glow. Phew, what a day, she said, yawning. It was fun. She smiled and touched me on the hand, perfectly innocent, until we caught each other's eye. And she remembered the kiss. Awkward. She took her hand away and closed her eyes. I plugged a headphone in each ear and scrolled through the music on my phone. Something soft and chilled to accompany the hypnotic rumble back up the M6 motorway to Manchester. I was used to being a burden to people, doctors, relatives, but I didn't want to be a burden to Becky. No one wanted to be the friend who fancied the friend who couldn't have the friend, especially when the friend knew all about it. What made it worse was that it would remain unspoken. And there's nothing I could say that wouldn't turbo-boost the shame I was trying so hard to conceal. I rested my head back against the seat and tried to doze off, wanting to escape to psycho-killer dream world again, where I'd be free from my own skin. Except, the dreams had stopped. Philippe was dead. I'd retrieved the object. Mission accomplished. But the object itself didn't seem to have any practical use. had no idea how it was connected to this so-called list or what Philippe had done with it in that beige murk sitting in the driveway of the old man's home. I guessed that I'd never know why it was so important or who the hell Philippe was. Just as I was drifting off to sleep, my phone vibrated in my handbag. It was Dr. J., Apologies for the late call, Lorna, but I need to book you in for an unscheduled appointment as soon as possible. Why? What's wrong? There's a problem with your latest tests, he said. We think one of the machines is malfunctioning, so we'll need to do them again. I came off the call with an appointment booked, right when I was starting to feel an ordinary sense of immortality again. Whoop! There it was. A sticky note from the universe. Dear Lorna, don't get cocky. Take your pills, watch your diet, don't overdo it. Remember, you're still sick, don't book any holidays. Thanks, you're good mate, fate. Destiny was a bitch. I popped a pill, closed my eyes and did my daily breathing exercises. Chapter 21. Brown-Eyed Girl The new hospital appointment was booked for Friday morning. I spent most of Thursday in class, scrolling through the photos me and Becky had posted from the trip to London. She was so photogenic. I looked like a mentally challenged ghost who didn't know how to smile. I needed to fake tan ASAP. I'd buy some Saturday. In the meantime, I spent the evening searching online, trying to find out what the hell the object was. I must have tried a hundred Google searches. Nothing. What would a bunch of Secret Service killers want with a grey piece of small, boxy, useless? Auntie Claire called my name from downstairs. I tucked the object away in my skinnies, climbed off my bed and ventured out of my room in trepidation. The silent war was still on. I'd managed to avoid her for days and didn't know how to act. She stood at the bottom of the stairs and told me she'd be away for the weekend seeing Uncle Paul her big bro, who lived with his wife and a couple of devil sprogs in Wales. My heart leapt. A long weekend of freedom. She pulled me into the kitchen to go through the ground rules. No mention of our recent contretemps. No more than one friend over, she said, and absolutely no boys. Seriously, that won't be a problem, I said. No junk food, eight hours of sleep and no going out. I nodded along convincingly. I didn't tell her about the malfunctioning hospital machines and the impromptu appointment. It would only make her more suffocating. Okay, I'm setting off now to avoid the traffic, she said, slipping into her coat and slapping a 20 for shopping down on the kitchen table. Are you sure you'll be okay? she asked, in the most patronising way ever. Like I was some recovering junkie who couldn't work the grill without setting fire to the entire street. I'm not a baby, I said. I can take care of myself. Well, excuse me for caring, she said, picking up a couple of weekend bags in the hall. I didn't mean... too late. She was out the door in a huff. I made myself a cup of tea, without burning the house down, and returned to my room. Little did I realise, life was about to spiral way, way out of control. As I sat on my bed with my cuppa, I felt the object digging into my thigh. I pulled it out of my pocket, only for it to spin loose out of my hand and end up submerged in the hot tea. I rushed out to the bathroom and poured the tea into the sink. I picked up the object, rinsed it off and wiped it down with a towel. As I was rubbing it dry, the top half slid off a centimetre under my thumb. So it's some kind of case. Hmm. The join was so thin and the case so well made that it was invisible to the naked eye. I dumped the towel and slid the top off the remainder of the way. Inside were a pair of contact lenses. Contact lenses? Really? Had I picked up the wrong mystery object? They lay face down in individual crater-like grooves. I took one out on the end of my finger, soft to the touch like gel. It seemed like they were the decorative, cosmetic kind, with brown retinas and pupils. I looked at myself in the mirror. The thought of sharing someone else's eye juices was a bit blurg, but I was curious. Oh, what the hell? I slipped the lens in my right eye. Apart from turning my blue eye brown, kind of cool, nothing happened. I slipped the other one in my left eye. The lenses went in easy, felt comfy, and I really liked brown eyed Lorna. I batted my lashes a couple of times in the mirror. Suddenly, the retinas lit up a fiery orange in the mirror. A holographic message in the same color appeared, floating in front of my eyes. Augmented reality. It said, message activated. Subject. Program update. Directive. Commit to memory. Assignments to follow. Dispose after use. Was that it? I batted hard a couple more times. Another message came up with a spinning arrow. Connecting to grid. Within a second or two, a holographic list of numbers streamed down in three columns in front of my eyes. Dates in the first, GPS coordinates in the second, such as 52.51862, minus 13.376187, and either the initials RFP or BFP in the third? The list came with a project name, Maelstrom, and a clearance level, Delta. There was an ominous sounding message at the end that read Classified file, dissemination strictly prohibited, contravention will meet with immediate and extreme punitive measures. If I looked down, the list scrolled down. If I looked up, the list scrolled up. It was a strange feeling, but super intuitive. I batted my eyes again, disconnecting from grid. The holograph vanished, and the retinas in the lenses returned to deep brown. Wow! This was some real spy shizzle right here. Tingly with excitement, I removed the lenses from my eyes and slipped them back in the case. I'd only looked the list up and down a few times, but already I had it. Every number, in order, committed to memory. Yet another weird and wonderful skill inherited from my donor. I returned to my bedroom and jumped on my bed in front of my laptop. I wanted to see what those dates and coordinates meant. I started with the dates, rattling them into Google, one after another. Nothing stood out about any of them. The initials in the final column were double Dutch to me too, so I tried the coordinates. They turned out to be locations all over the world. The first was the Reichstag building in Berlin, then Taipei, capital of Taiwan. The Golden Gate Bridge area in San Francisco was next. Then the Indonesian coast, followed by a whole bunch of locations, some specific sites, others just cities or countries. Mumbai International Airport, India. Itaipu Dam, Brazil. Madrid, Spain. The Champs-Élysées, Paris. The Vatican City, Rome. The Yas Circuit, Abu Dhabi, Johannesburg, South Africa, Tangier, Morocco, Seoul, South Korea, Capitol Hill, Washington, D.C., Tehran, Iran, the Kremlin, Moscow, Tokyo, Japan, Times Square, New York, Piccadilly Circus, London, Denver International Airport, USA. What did it all mean, though? I decided to do some more digging, googling each location along with the date. Nothing came up, so I tried searching for information about the lenses. There was a link to a website called The Weather Report, all about next-gen technologies. I skimmed the list of articles. Nothing about holographic contact lenses, but plenty on other future military tech. Smart bombs, drones, robot dogs, you name it. And this stuff wasn't fantasy. There were links to real, prototype test videos on YouTube. There were also lots of conspiracy theories from the past, predictions about the future and a load of stuff about secret societies. I read a bit more about the author. He called himself The Weatherman. He had a mailing address and an email. I wondered if I could run my recent discovery by the guy like I did with Dr Tariq, see if he knew anything. Or perhaps I shouldn't be telling anyone about the lenses. I decided to wash my hair and think it over. CHAPTER 22 BAD HAIR NIGHT To get the best out of your hair, you should always let it dry naturally around 70-80% to of the way, or so Becky had told me. Then you put your dryer on the coolest setting and keep it moving at least 6 inches away from your head. It was a lot of fuss, but if I could get my hair like hers, it was worth the extra effort. With a scar running down my chest the rest of me had to be bitchin' on all fronts. I also had my own straightening routine, where I gave my hair a thorough going over the night I washed it, then a quick re-straighten when I got up the next morning. I turned on the straighteners and let them heat up on the dresser while I ran the dryer through my hair. I liked to watch funny videos on my lappy while I did it. Tonight's selection was dogs trying to be friends with cats. You've probably seen it, Dogs with their little tails wagging, sniffing and nudging cats with their noses. And boom, the cats wallop them in the face with a lightning-fast jab. I must have seen it a hundred times, but it still made my stomach hurt from laughing. The video ended, and under the whine of the hairdryer, I thought I heard a noise like smashing glass, probably hoodies drinking and fighting on the street. I thought nothing of it until I heard a bang. Sounded like it came from downstairs. I turned off the dryer and opened the bedroom door, which I always closed out of habit. The lights were off in the rest of the house, including the landing. Another habit drilled into me by the cost-conscious, draft-conscious Auntie Claire. I listened hard. Silence. I padded around to the top of the stairs in my nightie and doggy slippers. The front door was secure and not a burglar in sight. Must have been imagining it. Spy shit had me spooked. I closed the door, sat down at the dresser and recommenced Project Mega Hair. What a nervy Nora. Another bump and bang. Again, I turned the dryer off. My dresser was positioned against the wall to the right of my bed, directly opposite the door to my room. I looked behind me in the mirror and pricked my ears. Then I heard a drunk shouting outside, bashing into a wheelie bin and smashing a bottle. Satisfied it wasn't a burglar after all, I clicked on another vid and carried on. Just over the top of the screen, something in the mirror made my heart beat out of my chest, a freezing tingle of fear creeping up my neck. Over my right shoulder, the door handle moved slowly downwards. Who was it? What was it? As someone, or something pressed the handle down on the other side of the door, I left the dryer blowing, but laid it down as softly as I could on the dresser next to the straighteners. I crept over to the wall beside the door, where I kept an old hockey stick as a memento from my sport-playing days. My hands tightened around the worn string handle of the stick. I raised it above shoulder height in the air, hoping I wouldn't freeze when it came time to swing. I watched the door open a crack in the mirror. Suddenly, it flew open and a big Algerian-looking guy in jeans and a black jacket burst into the room, armed with a gun with a silencer attachment, ready to shoot. He looked at the hairdryer, confused for a moment. I swung the bat at the base of his skull. He must have seen me in the mirror. He caught hold of the bat mid-swing, yanked it out of my hands and tossed it away. Before I could make a run for it, he slammed me backwards into the wardrobe, the force of it smashing one of the doors in. I felt like I'd been hit by a truck. He tucked the gun away inside the holster on the inside of his jacket and hoisted me out of the clothes and wire hangers. His hands were meaty, strong. He pushed me down on the floor near the dresser and kneeled on my chest. Where's the list? he asked in a deep, hybrid accent. London meets African migrant. I didn't answer. I could barely speak. Just give him the case, Lorne. And what, have him kill me anyway? The way I saw it, I had two choices, die one way or die another. I didn't like the sound of either, so I stalled him while I thought of a third. What list? I choked. He slapped me hard across the face, then kneeled harder on my chest, right on my scar. I don't know if it was the blind panic, but my kick-ass moves from the alley had totally deserted me. Give up the list or I keep squeezing, he said, tightening his grip around my throat. After all the pills and the exercise and the hoping and the praying and the raw broccoli, this was how it would end. I'd tippy my way through life into a giant metal man-trap. Now I'd die on a Thursday night with damp hair to the sound of a keyboard-playing cat. The man loomed over me like the grim reaper, pockmarked skin, a boxer's nose and a badly shaven head. He slapped me hard again, my eyes stung with tears. You've got three seconds to give me the list or you're fucking dead, he said. You'll kill me anyway, I said. This is how these guys worked. I just knew like I knew. At last, Philippe's heart was talking to me. Three, the intruder said. Desperate, I tried to peel his fingers from around my throat. Two, even more desperate, I tried to gouge his eyeballs out. He smacked my hands away. One. One. I bit him on the wrist, but he seemed to enjoy it. He put a finger to his ear and a hand over my mouth, at least letting me hoover up some air through my nostrils. She won't give it up, he said into a hidden mic on his lapel. You want me to execute? Talk to me, Philippe, come on. I heard a click above my head. There, directly above my head, was a green LED light that meant hot. Understood the man said to his invisible boss. He grabbed a pillow off my bed and pushed it over my face. I tried in vain to break off one of his wrists. The pressure was immense, but the sense of panic worse. I had to fight, focus, stretch. My only hope was to reach those straighteners. But I couldn't see shit with the pillow over my face. I reached, I stretched, I touched the wire, but couldn't get a grip. The intruder pressed harder, pushing more of his weight on my chest. Finally, I touched the wire with a fingertip, then a full finger and another. I tugged the wire and caught the straighteners in my hand as they fell from the dresser. At the same time, I thrust a knee upwards and connected with the intruder's balls. The pillow loosened over my face as he gasped in pain. I rolled my head out to the side and reached up with the straighteners, clamping his nose between the red-hot plates. I squeezed with all the grip I had. The scream he made wasn't human. More like a live pig having its intestines ripped out. He yanked his face out from between the plates and leapt backwards, the smell of sizzling skin filling the room. He cradled his blistered nose in his hands. I had a free second to scramble to my feet before he punched me hard in the face. Pain raged in my right cheek. You fucking bitch, he shrieked, dragging me up off the floor by my hair. I twisted the fingers on his hand until they cracked. He shrugged it off and picked me up clean off my feet before hurling me the width of the room against the blinds that covered the bedroom window. I bounced back instantly. He reached inside his jacket for his gun, but came out empty. Without even realising it myself, I'd drawn it out of his holster a split second before I became a human javelin. I squeezed my eyes and then the trigger. I was going for the chest, but as I let off a shot through the silencer barrel, the gun kicked like a mule and I staggered back and hit him in the left shoulder. I steeled myself and fired again, but missed, the bullet tearing into the broken wardrobe door. In a flash, he bolted out of the room and thundered down the stairs, clutching his shoulder. I followed him down a few seconds later, wide-eyed and wired, the gun trained in front of my eyeline, finger itching against the trigger, clammy with cooling sweat. I swept each room like they do on TV. The house was dark and empty. The front and back doors were locked shut, but the kitchen window was gaping open. He'd smashed the pane in the corner and got in by reaching through and undoing the latch. Same way out as in. I took the key from the top drawer and unlocked the back door. I must have stood there for about five minutes, staring into the tiny brick and concrete yard before I was satisfied he was gone i stepped back inside turned on a light and took a seat at the kitchen table the cordless phone lay in front of me on the table i rested the gun carefully on its side and dialed 999 attempted murder i said come quick has the intruder gone the call handler asked yes 10 minutes they said hang tight my hands trembled like little lost dogs i could barely hold the phone still to my ear i fumbled it onto the table I let out a deep breath. I sat, vibrating like a washing machine on spin. The police knocked on the door around forty minutes later, the neighbours at their windows. You can't do much in a narrow terrace street without anyone knowing or talking about it. I was holed up in the closet under the stairs, clutching the gun and hockey stick when they came around. They sent a male and female in a small Vauxhall hatch. No CSI, no detectives in suits, they took down my statement at the kitchen table, trying to identify the nature of the crime. Did I know him? Did he shoot at me? Did he try and abduct me? Did he steal anything? Now, I can be a bit naive sometimes, like when I bought an iPad online and it was just an A4 picture in an envelope. But I'm not a total donut. I know you can get in humongous trouble for firing a gun. I also know that the law says you can't shoot people who break into your home. I'd heard too many horror stories of burglars suing their victims and people getting banged up for having the nutsacks to take on intruders. I knew the law was a giant pleb, which is why I pretended the intruder had shot at me. I made no mention of char-grilling his conch. No, I wanted them to treat me like a victim, stick me in a safe house, put a two-man team on me 24 hours a day, at the very least have a fuzz walk up and down the street at night. All I got was a copy of the form I signed and a business card. They said they were looking into it. They'd be in touch and they'd put a patrol car outside as a deterrent. That's the best you get on a rough estate that half the shoplifters, drug dealers, armed robbers and benefit cheats of Manchester called home. If you get scared, or in case anything happens, said the female officer, call the number on the card. This is why I was holding on to the gun. If they wouldn't beef up security, I would. I didn't tell them about the list either. Something stopped me. Again, a quiet little voice said not to. Trust no one. The police left, promising a team would turn up the next day to run ballistics, dust for fingerprints and carry out follow-up interviews with the neighbours. With little chance of sleep before morning, I made myself a brew and a cheese toasty, the only response I knew to a bad situation. I worked out my options. There were approximately none. Auntie Claire would shit a brick when she found out what had happened and would bubble wrap me for the rest of my life. And what was she going to do about armed intruders anyway? No, there was no point in her finding out any sooner than she had to. Then there was Becky's place. I couldn't stay there forever and I'd just be putting her beautiful face in danger. My only option was to carry on as normal. I'd go to the hospital on the bus, nice and public, then barricade myself in the house and power nap under Auntie Claire's bed with the gun. Something deep down told me there were four rounds left by the weight. And I knew I could shoot the guy's ankles off if he set foot in the room, then put one in his skull, if I could get my aim right. To make the anxiety bearable, I decided to turn it into a game. Can you stay alive for the next 24 hours? Fun for all the family, ages 16 and over. Yay! This has been Truly Deadly, written by Rob Aspinall, narrated by Ella Lynch.